Welcome to Ecoactivist Journeys. This episode is an online speaker event that took place with students at the University of St Andrews on the topic of writing climate justice into law. I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon or whatever time it is wherever you are in the world. Um, welcome to today's event, uh, writing climate justice into law. In particular, I'd like to very warmly welcome Margareta and thank her for joining us today to share her knowledge um, and answer all of our questions. Um, so yeah, just to give a little bit of background, um, Dr. Margareta Bevarenka is an assistant professor of public international law at Leiden University and adjunct senior lecturer in environmental law at the Pacific Center for Environment and Sustainable Development at the University of the South, pa South Pacific. She's also an attorney at Blue Ocean Law, which is a boutique international law firm specializing in human indigenous rights, self-determination, environmental justice in the Pacific. Margaret has acted as a legal advisor to governments at international um, climate negotiations, um, represented NGOs at the UN Human Rights Council and advised the African Commission on Human and People Rights and the UN High Commissioner for um, Human Rights Regional Office for the Pacific on Human Rights and Climate Justice. There are at least a hundred other things she's done and is doing um, so I could, that I could probably mention and um, elaborate on. But I think just having said that, I think we're really honored to have you here, Margareta. And um, yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, I'd also like to say that this is a collaborative event um, between the Student Association Environment Subcommittee, um, the Rector's Committee, Amnesty, St. Andrews um, and St. Andrews Law Society. Heather, the Climate Action Coordinator, um, from the Rector's Committee and um, long president from Amnesty will join me in hosting and asking um, Margarita classic questions on climate justice and law. And furthermore, we'll, at the end, we'll also leave some time for audience questions. So feel free to already comment them in the comment section if you like, or later on, just yeah, raise a hand to ask them as well. Um, so yes, let's start. Um, we're, we're definitely finding ourselves in, in a time of um, climate emergency, emergency, and I think, especially for us as young generation, we often see so many horrific things happening in the world um, that prompt us to think, like, how is this allowed to happen, um, and, and, and like, how do we have a system that allows this? Um, so, like, the first question that I'd like to ask you, Margareta, uh, Margareta is. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the field of climate law? And if you think there is, a, in the future, there'll be a much stronger legal tools available to enforce climate justice. Oh, um, those are very good questions. So generally the field of climate law, I think you can say emerges from the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the main international treaty that, um, that governs climate change, as you probably all know, adopted in 1992 at the Rio Convention on the Environment and Sustainable Development. Well, if you want to remember one thing about that treaty, it's that it sets uh, an, an ultimate objective of preventing dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. And that's, um, that objective triggers a lot of questions, especially from the perspective of the climate emergency that we are in today. Um, I think optimists or um, people with, with special agendas like to, to say that this is, this is about the future. 
we prevent something that may happen in the future. But I think especially, especially young people uh, are aware that perhaps this objective, perhaps um, the world has already failed to achieve that objective. Perhaps we are already in an era where we see dangerous um, anthropogenic interference with the climate system. Um, There's so many uh, impacts already manifesting all, all around the world and deadly disasters and spread of diseases, um, all kinds of impacts that already um, cost human life and lives and force people to migrate, etc. Um, so what, it, what is dangerous? How, how bad does it have to become for it to be dangerous? Right? And then um, from a legal perspective, if you say that governments may have failed to achieve that objective, that then triggers questions about responsibility for the consequences. Um, so that's about the climate, about the climate um, convention, of course. There are two more treaties, part of the international climate regime, that is the Kyoto Protocol um, and the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement being more or less an, a kind of successor to the Kyoto Protocol, even though the Kyoto Pro Protocol remained in place. And as you know, the Paris Agreement sets a long-term temperature goal of keeping global temperature rise well below two degrees Celsius and pursuing efforts to keep them below 1.5. Again, a lot of questions and a question also about how these two goals relate to one another. So I know one school of thought would say that, well, the Paris Agreement specifies what is meant with the ultimate objective of the, of the, uh, the convention, but others may say that it is about minimizing harm that results from you know, the failure to, to achieve that objective. So there are different perspectives. And then of course we see around the world that different laws have been adopted at the regional level and the national level to give effect to the convention and to the Paris Agreement and to the Kyoto Protocol as well. So for example, the emission trading system is mainly, mainly triggered by the Kyoto Protocol and is set up under the Kyoto Protocol. But now we see new, new um, legislation, for example, the Climate Change Act in the UK that is adopted to implement um, the Paris Agreement. And of course, there's also now litigation happening to try to enforce um, these instruments. So your, your second question, do you think we'll see stronger climate laws in the future? Um, yeah, it's a tricky one because of course the Paris Agreement, the Paris Agreement is a very weak treaty, as you probably know. It doesn't contain um, legally binding emission reduction commitments, but I think most people um, who, who were in Paris or who followed the, the process closely would say that it was the best that could be achieved at the time. And there's really no reason to think that anything better could be achieved today at the multilateral level, just given the interests that are at stake. Um, and so um, probably the, a stronger treaty, like, like something like the Kyoto Protocol would be a bit better, um, is probably not um, yeah, something that we can realistically expect. So um, probably it's at the national level where we should expect stronger laws, laws and sometimes that needs to be um, pushed for through litigation. And that is also a trend that we see happening now with literally thousands of cases having been brought before domestic courts or climate change. I'll, I'll stop here. <laughs>
Yeah, no, I think there's definitely um, a hope in seeing a lot more cases um, with regards to environment, but also linked to human rights that are going forward um, on the, on a climate from a climate perspective. And I think those are often driven very much from what are the national laws and how can national be be looked to enforce some of these regulations. Um, so it's probably still the safest bet um, rather than something international. Um, to see how kind of what national tools can be utilized. But yeah, I'd really like to talk a little bit about the case of the um, Heathrow Airport ruling that was made the third runway of Heathrow Airport illegal over climate change in the UK. Um, and that I think was um, then again overruled towards the end. Well, it was a big success at first um, and then it was overruled by the Supreme Court in the UK at the end of last year. And um, yeah, I think I'd like to ask you a little bit about how was how that significant and what can we learn from that case? Yeah, it's a very good question. What is, um, and what's probably most significant about the case is that it shows that the, the long-term temperature goal of the Paris Agreement of pursuing efforts to keep warming well below two degrees, uh, sorry, <laughs> Keeping, keeping temperature as well below um, two degrees and pursuing efforts to keep them below 1.5, that this goal, which is in itself not, not exactly binding internationally, it's a goal that, that informs the commitments of parties, but it's not, it's not easy to argue that it is binding as such, certainly not on individual um, parties to the Paris Agreement. So that that made it easy to dismiss it as you know kind of legally insignificant. But what the um, court of appeal judgment in the Heathrow case shows is that that it does have teeth in a way. It can be given, it can it can bite, namely by um, requiring governments to um, to take it into account in their climate policy and in their decision making, including on um, you know, approving or not approving big, um, high emission, highly polluting projects, um, such as air airport expansions. Of course, these come with huge um, emissions and thus consequences for the climate. And it was clear from the evidence that uh, Plan B and Friends of the Earth submitted that the government hadn't properly taken this into account um, in light of the Paris um, Agreement goals. So that's, that's why the Court of Appeal said that the decision to approve the extension was invalid. Now, unfortunately, the Supreme Court has overruled it. Um, it's, well, I'm just, I'm working on a project now on, um, that looks at best practice in, in um, judicial decisions on climate change. But I'm now thinking I also need a, another project on worst practice. <laughs> this would fall into that category because it is a really bad decision um, where uh, essentially the, the, the Supreme Court seems to ignore evidence that, that the, uh, the government didn't take account of the Paris Agreement, kind of just sets it aside like as irrelevant and then essentially argues that, well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much because um, that this is that the Paris Agreement goals weren't taken into account because the government can still decide further down the line not to approve 
the extension. So there's another possibility later in time to stop it. And it's interesting because we, we saw a similar line of reasoning from the Supreme Court of Norway on uh, another climate case, the people versus Arctic oil case. You may have followed that case as well, which is about a license that the government had granted for exploration of oil in uh, the Baltic Sea, in a very pristine area of the Baltic Sea where previously you know, no such activities were allowed. So for the first time, uh, oil companies were allowed to, to go ahead and drill there and explore. Um, and environmental organizations, Greenpeace and a few other organizations and some youth groups from Norway had challenged that and said that is contrary to the Paris Agreement, contrary to human rights. And um, that was um, that litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court in a similar vein as what the Supreme Court in the UK did said that, well, they can go ahead and explore and the government can always then later on decide not to allow the actual extraction. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's interesting, yeah, it's interesting line of reasoning. It's worth noting that both cases have now been litigated up to the highest uh, courts in the UK and in Norway. And both the UK and Norway are parties to the European Convention on Human Rights. And that means that um, there's a potential to appeal to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. So it may be that the last word about these cases hasn't been spoken yet, uh, as far as the court system is concerned. We will have to see that. Yeah, it's incredibly frustrating because obviously it was such a win at first that it's being recognized and it made sense why um, it's, yeah, the, 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 the Heathrow court case was being, was turned down on the court. Um, and then it's just so strange that then the Supreme Court unanimously overruled that, oh, it's something that governments can still decide later on. Whereas like, I think morally, like, why would you, like, if you look at it, you say like, why? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there is still a hope. Would you say there's still hope for all those cases to be, um, yeah, addressed further on whether through governments or through in the European, yeah, law. Um, but I think we, we talked a little bit about um, the Paris Agreement um, and these cases show that obviously it matters. It matters to be implemented um, and it matters um, to law, but obviously it's not legally binding. So there's, a, there's some yeah some gap between that and um actual an actual legal enforcement but do you think that maybe in the future and um, through future meetings or through future climate negotiations there's um hope that the paris agreement can be enforced and held legally accountable um well the chances of that happening through the multilateral um negotiations are i think close to zero it's just not going to happen. Um, I was personally part of the of negotiations on the compliance committee. So the, the Paris Agreement sets up a compliance committee, um, which is meant to, which could have been an enforcement mechanism, right? Um, and, and I represented um, a Pacific Island country, Vanuatu, in these negotiations. So for Vanuatu, it, it was important that the mechanism would be as strong as possible. 
but it was very frustrating because really the overwhelming majority of parties wanted this mechanism to be facilitative only. There, it doesn't have any enforcement power. So of course, in any event, the Paris Agreement doesn't have legally, legally binding emission reduction commitments, right? Um, and so it's already, it's, it's a tough question to say how, the, how enforcement could work, but still you could think of some creative options of creating at least some, some kind of individual um, accountability for contributing to the common goals that are set in the Paris Agreement. Um, and that's, that, that just didn't materialize. So if, if you're interested in this, you know, you can just, you can um, look at the Paris Agreement, the text of the Paris Agreement on, on the compliance mechanism that sets it up. And I look at the, at the rules of the committee and see that it's, it's a very weak mechanism that, that um, yeah, it, it offers some oversight and then there's this facilitative function, which is important. Like if a country cannot, generally cannot meet its commitment because of capacity constraints, for example, then the committee can play a role in, in kind of trying to link that to capacity building and finance. It's, that's important, but it doesn't really have, um, it doesn't really give Paris Agreement teeth. So it's very different from the compliance committee that was set up under the Kyoto Protocol, which is actually a proper compliance mechanism because it has a power to issue sanctions on countries that don't meet their targets, right? So, but it's it's very different. Kyoto targets were legally binding, and then if a country doesn't meet them, another country or a group of countries they can bring that that country before the compliance committee, and the compliance committee can issue sanctions, which can be really very expensive. It's mainly about then suspension from the emission, the carbon trading mechanisms, but that comes with with that has serious you know financial implications. But that's an enforcement mechanism that, that, that works well, I would say, but we lost it. The Paris Agreement doesn't have it. So um, thankfully, you know, people are, have become creative and found other ways to try to enforce these targets or the, the, um, the, the pledges, the, the nationally determined contributions, NDCs that countries are obliged to submit under the Paris Agreement and have gone to their own national courts and in some cases to um, regional and international bodies. Um, and a big question that arises in these challenges is what, what are the individual targets of countries? Because we don't, the Paris Agreement doesn't give an answer to that, right? In, in the Kyoto Protocol, if you look at the annexes, you see a very neat table which lists all parties to the Kyoto Protocol, developed country parties, I must say, and specifies a target. And it's very clear, they need to report and you can very clearly see if they meet it or they don't. And if they don't, then it's a breach of their obligation. The Paris Agreement leaves it to countries themselves to decide how much they will do. That's the NDC, it's nationally determined. Mm -hmm. There's no way to, make, to ensure that it adds up. So what we see now is that the NDCs, the pledges of countries, if you add them all up and you and you count on all of all countries achieving their targets, which is not a guarantee because they're not binding anyway, but if they would achieve all of their targets, you would still have more than three degrees of temperature rise, right? So that is way more than the common goal that was set. So how do you so how do you bridge that ambition gap? What does it require of each country? That's a very difficult difficult question for for lawyers and you know, for, for, 
for X for, for everyone. So that is a question that you need to grapple with in, in litigation because you try, let's say you, you, tr you go to court, you try to hold your government to account, you say you, you should do more. You know what you're doing, this is not enough. How much, how much is it that the government um, should do? There are different strategies. In some cases, litigants avoid the question and say um, the government must prove that it's enough. That let's go, let the government make a case that, you know, let them demonstrate that it is fair and that it is ambitious what they do. In other cases, litigants actually try to come up with a specific target. They say it must be this or that. So the agenda case came with a specific target. Um, it said that the, the government, the government had pledged to cut emissions by 20, 17% by 2020 against 1990 levels. And Urgenda argued that it should be within the range of 25 to 40%. And that target was based on an IPCC report. It came from an IPCC report that, that specified targets for um, Annex 1 or developed countries, rich countries. And that should be within that range. And then Urgenda argued the Netherlands is, if anything, you know, it's on the richer side of the spectrum, it should do at least this. And the court accepted that, um, but said that because of the discretion of the state, we can only order that 25% as the minimum what the government should do. So not more than 25%, but the 25% is the bottom line. So at least that's significantly more than 17%. So that is one way in which you can say climate, international climate law has been enforced. Um, and a similar victory was achieved in, um, in Ireland, in the climate case Ireland. And um, in Europe, the third victory was secured last week. I'm not sure if you followed it by a French NGO against uh, the French government. So uh, those are some successes in climate litigation. But of course, to be, that sounds all very nice, but of course the overall picture is still one of grave uh, non-compliance and um, lack of ambition. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely so much we could discuss further into that in those cases. So thank you. I'm going to pass it on to Heather for the next few questions. So the first question I have is, so you've done a lot of work with indigenous communities. So we're wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that and um, what the main barriers you face when trying to pass laws supporting indigenous communities are. Well, um, in terms of barriers, one, one problem is often that indigenous communities are in most countries uh, a minority and not properly represented in government. And so um, very often government policies and laws do not really represent their interests. So, and that's a problem in passing laws because usually you need some kind of support from par parliament as well as uh, governments or at least parliaments or the, 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 the majority. So that is, um, that makes it very difficult. Um, you need very strong advocates of indigenous communities within the political system to get laws passed generally. Um, that's also why indigenous communities have resorted to litigation in some cases, just to try to claim their rights. Um, and in countries with, where the rule of law is strong enough that, that has led to successes. Um, 
and not only before domestic courts, but also before um, specialized human rights bodies. So um, in particular, the Inter-American Commission on Court of Human Rights and the African Commission on Human, Human and People's Rights, they have at times really intervened to protect the rights of indigenous communities to their land, for example. Um, and that's very important also from a, from a climate justice perspective because um, indigenous communities are often not only at the forefront of experiencing the impact of climate change, but also um, experiencing the negative consequences of the root causes of climate change, like the, the, you know, the, the extraction of, um, of fossil fuels um, and minerals and other forms of environmental and biodiversity destruction. So often indigenous communities who are, who are most, most directly affected by that. Um, so um, yeah, this, this kind of litigation is important. And, and at the same time, again, when you look at, when you read, when you read case law, it's very encouraging. It's like, wow, you know, all these, these victories, um, it's, um, yeah, the, the, the law works in a way and, and rights are being protected, but of course, Nine out of ten, or maybe that's even an optimist, an optimistic um, estimate. But most most situations of, of violations of the rights of indigenous peoples will never be litigated. And of course, there are many losses as well that often don't get so much attention. Um, so it, it remains a real problem. And we've seen in in the in the context of the pandemic as well that um, the pandemic has been used by governments to try to push through permissions for um, extraction project, uh, projects and, and to kind of relax environmental safeguards and um, not respect the principle of, um, of um, uh, free prior and informed consent. That is really key to the protection of indigenous people's rights. Um, sometimes even when indigenous, um, when lockdowns, lockdowns prevented indigenous um, members of indigenous populations from um, participating or for, from even knowing, knowing what's going on or, and from, from participating in the consultations or from protesting. And then these, sometimes these same lockdown restrictions weren't applied to private companies. So I've seen some examples of, of um, violations and, worsening or happening because of the pandemic as well. Yeah, thanks. I think that's a really interesting point to make. Um, that sort of follows on to one of the other questions, which was, um, so how exactly do governments get away with using crises such as the pandemic to push forward on popular projects, for example, the Keystone XL pipeline? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it, it shouldn't be like it shouldn't be like that. How they get away with it is in, in, in various ways. Sometimes, um, you know, some of you may have read the shock doctrine uh, by um, Naomi Klein. It's not a it's not a legal book, but it does give. I think it makes an important point about what happens to um, you know, what happens to society in crisis. Sometimes, some, sometimes a, a crisis is is for um, it's it's an ideal situation to to push things through because everything is in a flux and you can push through good things and bad things. Unfortunately, bad things are often um, advanced at, at these times. So the, the shock doctrine lists a number of examples, also related to the extraction of natural resources in in war 
uh, war zones, for example. So this is not not too um, different as such. Um, people feel that they, you see that often people um, somehow are more um, amenable to authoritarian approaches and they accept a lot of interference with their own liberty and their concern perhaps also with, with their own safety and maybe less outward looking. Um, there are a lot of factors that come into play. Um, so that that's, um, I think the societal kind of context. And then there's also, of course, um, legally speaking, there may also be more discretion for governments to, um, to let's say, restrict rights that they were previously not, um, that was previously not, not allowed. For example, during a state of emergency, the state has more powers, can do more things. But I must say that from a legal perspective, Usually, these these things that happen, like you know, when um, violations of indigenous people's rights in, in in connection with extraction projects during the pandemic, is really not permissible in any way. There's no there's no legal basis for it, um, even though there are some you know relaxations possible of of some of these rules during crisis. You see that it's always quite um, limited what is permitted, and it must always be proportionate. Um, so I think most of these um, injustices that we see happening are actually violations. So why do governments get away with it? Why do people not succeed in, in securing their rights? And there's a range of factors. And it's a usual factor that it's hard at accessing justice is often, is, um, it requires some technical knowledge, some expertise, resources that those, the, the victims of those violations don't have. Um, often it goes unseen, there's, there's um, insufficient attention for it. I mean, you don't even hear much about it, right? It's not so much in the news or anything. You have to really dig up reports of organizations that monitor this, like uh, some item six in an IOCN newsletter it speaks about these things, but um, it doesn't really make headlines, which uh, is also, I think, a reason why governments get away with it. So it's, yeah, all these, these factors combined. Yeah, I think that's a really good, yeah, the fact that it just goes um, like under the radar so much of the time, yeah, it's really unfortunate. Um, so the third question is, as a lawyer, um, what's your opinion on climate strikes that make use of nonviolent civil disobedience, such as those of Extinction Rebellion? Oh, <laughs> well, as a lawyer, um, that is interesting to answer that question as a lawyer, um, because, of course, as a, as a human being, <laughs> or, or um, yes, I'm very concerned about climate justice, I would also have an opinion, but as a lawyer, it's, it's interesting, I never thought it through so much, but um, in uh, civil disobedience, I think in some cases, if, if the civil disobedience is a mean, mean means of addressing very serious human rights violations or violations of, um, of other um, environmental protections that are really essential for you know, safeguarding the, the future of humanity, then um, it may be proportionate. And then that means that um, any way, any um, 
um, let's say, violent reaction to the government or use of the justice system by the government to try to stop it or punish it, deter it, would actually then also be uh, contrary to human rights law. So that, that's, I think, that would be my legal assessment, but of course that's very controversial. <laughs> okay, so I'll pass on to Long now. Yep. Um, yeah, th thank you for raising up um, these points about how it's, there, all, there are all these barriers that are blocking um, issues in the in, in, in the indigenous, indigenous communities um, to be known and seen. Um, I, I just want to ask how helpful have you found sort of human rights law and in institutions to um, climate justice litigation for these communities, for example? Mm. Yeah, so Human rights law, um, yeah, as you have noticed, in, is increasing, increasingly being used to advance climate justice. Um, for a bit of background, some of you um, will know that the very first human rights case that was really a climate justice case was filed in 2005 before the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights on behalf of indigenous people from the Arctic. Um, and after that, for almost a decade, there were almost no, ca no cases that used human rights as the basis for you know, claims that governments weren't doing enough or corporations were violating um, rights um, in, in connection with climate change. And that has changed. Um, yeah, it just in the run up to the the Paris um, conference in 2015 and after that. So now we have about, um, about 80 rights-based climate cases. Um, and if you wanna know how effective those cases are, how helpful they are, it's almost really too early to say because vast majority of these cases is still pending. We don't have outcomes yet. And so we, we do have some early victories and early losses as well. So the, the cases that I mentioned um, are very notable in, in Europe, the Urgenda case and then the French and the Irish cases. And there have been other, vic other victories as well. Um, a really important one is in the Colombia where the NGO de, de Justicia um, together with other groups brought a case that was really focused on the protection of the Amazon and that case resulted in a very positive judgment in which the rights of um, future generations were also recognized. Um, that's, some, that's, that's very innovative, of course. Um, and it um, gave the court also a mandate to, to monitor the implementation of the judgment, which called for the establishment of a, a protectorate of the Amazon, essentially, so that um, you know, deforestation would really be put to a, to a halt. Um, in most of the of the parts of the Amazon that were part of that were concerned in litigation, so that was that's a very that's a good judgment that that would give us hope. Um, and another very good one it comes from Asia, Pakistan. That is Lagari versus Pakistan. You may have heard of that case too. It was brought by a Pakistani farmer who essentially said that the government wasn't. 
and wasn't implementing its own climate laws and policies. So um, the court agreed in that it's a beautifully drafted judgment in which the court really relies on the right to um, dignity and the rule of law, very human rights um, uh, focused. And it, it's also a very creative outcome because the, the, the court ordered the government to set up a climate change commission with a mandate to you know, ensure that the, that the, the relevant laws and, and policies were actually implemented. And it also kept jurisdiction to make sure that, that this would happen. And you know, there was reporting back was required to the court um, to make sure that the, that the judgment actually changed something on the ground. But those are very good um, outcomes. But still, of course, um, it's, it's just a few cases in a few countries that deal with specific issues or specific timeframes. Like the agenda judgment was about 20, 2020 targets and we're in 2021. So what's next? Um, the, the Dutch government has set a new target, which is relatively ambitious, but it's non-binding. So can that be enforced again through human rights law? And um, yeah, the many questions remaining. And another observation that's, um, that we should make when it comes to climate justice litigation is that we have all these cases now, dozens of cases being filed before mainly domestic courts and a few regional courts and um, international bodies, but very few of them actually ask for compensation. So um, while many people, especially in the global south, already suffer um, terrible human rights violations as a result of climate change, are forced to migrate, are losing their land, people are being killed as a result of landslides, floods, cyclones, etc. Um, children can't go to school um, because you know the school has been destroyed in a cyclone. There's no money to rebuild the school. These things are happening, um, but few of these cases, cases even ask for compensation, let alone that it's been granted. Um, compensation is a difficult question, of course, but it's really part of the package of what you would expect, right? In, in climate, from a climate justice and human rights perspective, if, if human rights, if you cannot get any um, you know, meaningful remedy when your rights are violated. If there's no restorative justice, then human rights are not, not meaningless, but they have much less meaning than they, they should have. So um, that is something that we don't know if human rights laws and human rights mechanisms can deliver that kind of justice as well, restorative justice, because litigants are not, are not even trying that. So in that sense, I think that the short answer was a very long answer to your question. The short answer is that we, much of it we don't know yet hasn't been tried. I think we can move on to uh, Q&A now, uh, audience Q&A. If I have a question, that's right. Yes, go for it. Thanks. Um, so we're at least sort of nominally meeting in Scotland. Um, and it's seeming like a distinct possibility that Scotland will become an independent country at, at some point in the next few decades. Um, and so I was wondering if you were uh, talking to a constitutional convention that was trying to draft a new constitution for an independent Scotland, what would you suggest they put into that constitution about environmental protection? Um, and, and particularly, I'm interested to hear what 
you might think of um, some, some suggestions in the what you might call the green constitutionalism literature around giving constitutional courts when they're ruling on a piece of legislation that would have drastic environmental impacts, giving them the power to delay implementation of those pieces of legislation until after a referendum or a, a new election is held. Um, I, I was wondering what your thoughts might be. Oh, that's, I love that question. <laughs> that's, well, in terms of a wish list for a constitution of a newly independent Scotland, um, you'd start, of course, with the, the full spectrum of rights, not just civil and political rights, but also um, economic, social and cultural rights, and then the right to a healthy environment, um, the right to sustainable development, energy justice, access to clean energy for all. Um, and then the rights of future generations. If you can constitutionalize those, that's beautiful. And then you want to think of enforcement of those rights. So, um, yeah, you want to specify that courts have jurisdiction to actually enforce those rights. So they're not just, you know, non-justiciable kind of um, policy principles, but they're actually rights that can be enforced, or the whole set of them. Right, that's a problem that uh, that's, that litigants often face. That the constitution, these constitutional protections are. Now, the distinctions are made between rights and then the civil and political rights are, are deemed to be enforceable and, and the other other rights are, are deemed to be principles of some sort and not enforceable. So you want to clarify that. And then the other ideas um, are, are very interesting too, I think. So um, sure, the constitutions around the world are full of those kind of provisions where very um, le um, legislation or policy very serious impact needs a special majority or needs a referendum or um, or the approval of two uh, subsequent governments. So I think it's really creative and, and ingenious idea to link that to uh, to impact to, to climate intent or, or impact the projects or, or initiatives that have significant bearing on the climate as well. And certainly that would tie in very well with the in, with the, these different rights, including the intergenerational um, rights dimension of the constitution. I think you should be on the committee if it is established. <laughs> That's a very exciting question. So thank you for asking and for answering it. Um, I think quickly going off that question, there is a, another question placed in the chat around um, Sarah was wondering how hopeful we can be about legal protection of the rights of future generations. Yeah. Um, well, that's, um, that's another very good and difficult to answer question. Uh, well, what gives reason to be hopeful is that there's a lot of development in this space. So, um, you know, we have a few court orders that implicitly or explicitly recognize the rights of future generations, which um, was uh, was so far very rare. The first, perhaps if, if you're really interested in this topic from a legal perspective, your, your starting point is really the OPOSA um, doctrine that was established by the Supreme Court of the Philippines um, following the, um, the very visionary uh, case brought by Filipino um, environmental attorney Tony Oposa, who is still very active as an environmental um, jurist and activist. Uh, so um, read that judgment, it's a beautiful judgment where the court finds that the 
that it has that that children have standing to bring a case about environmental protection on behalf of future generations as representing future generations. Um, and so we now have a few other judgments that make similar, um, yeah, that establish similar principles within that another within other jurisdictions and the Colombia. Um, the, the judgment from the Supreme Court of Columbia that I just mentioned um, is probably another really landmark um, judgment. Um, I am currently part of an initiative which is um, trying to draft principles on the rights of future generations. That is um, the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands is hosting that. They have before issued um, similar principles that have been quite influential in shaping human rights law. Um, one set of principles on um, what, what amounts to violations of economic, social and cultural rights that was really at the beginning of when, when the, the International Covenant on Economic and Social Cultural Rights was starting to get meaning through the interpretations of the Committee on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights. That this myth that economic, social, cultural rights are not enforceable mm. remained quite prevalent. So experts drew up these um, these principles to show that this is when a violation happens. Right? These these rights are enforceable just like civil and political rights. And then another initiative was um, where the Maastricht principles on extraterritorial obligations on economic, social, and cultural rights. So they stipulate what our states obligations towards people abroad. When it comes to economic, social and cultural rights, another area where it was felt that these rights don't have, they're just ignored by states or states even pretend that they do not have any obligations towards people outside their own country. This is very important for, from a climate justice perspective as well, the, the debate about obligations for the state's own you know, citizens for, and, and people abroad. And now this new initiative looks at the rights of future generations. So together with a couple of other um, lawyers from around the world and some also some members of treaty bodies from human rights treaty bodies, we are looking at what is already there in terms of you know, hard law and decisions. Um, how can you creatively argue that the law should be interpreted as already providing Rights, rights of future generations, and where is the scope for you know, the progressive development of the law? So um, it's an initiative and we'll see where it goes. And there are other very um, interesting initiatives to try to establish those rights and, and try to gain recognition of these, of these rights. Of course, there are more radical proposals as well that sometimes, they're sometimes being made. Like you, could just, you could create a new treaty on the rights of future generations. Um, but I think before that's possible, probably it's, it's important to resolve some difficult questions around standing, for example, like who that's one of the main most difficult questions who represents future generations in claims, for example, especially when you talk about people who haven't been born yet. Right, so with, I think with, we've come quite a long way in recognizing that children can represent future generations. But um, how about those who are not yet born? And that's, that's really, that's difficult. There's literature on that, not much practice yet. But um, I think it's, it's widely recognized that, that intergenerational equity is very important. It's also recognized in the Paris Agreement now. 
So that provides at least a hook to try to also further these, the rights of, of future generations. Yeah, very exciting. Thank you. We have two more questions which are in the chat. I think maybe we can, I don't know, quickly speed through them. Um, the first one is from Katarina, and she's asking, do you think that courts deal with urgent cases reasonably quickly? Does it sometimes happen that processes drag on for so long that the case is no longer relevant or urgent? Yeah, that's a really good question as well, and one that arises in in many cases. So um, it depends. I mean, for some courts, some courts don't really even want to really make <laughs> be constructive, and so it's very easy. Um, arg argument for a court to dismiss a case if they want to do that. But we also see some um, more hopeful practice. So in Agenda, for example, this issue was really at the, at the forefront of the case because the case concerned the 2020 targets and the judgment was delivered, as you may remember, uh, in, um, in December 2019. So just before it would have become almost in the theoretical um, judgment and and the court did it really did its best to accelerate the proceedings and make sure that the that the judgment was delivered at a time when it was still relevant so for example there was a, a push from some corners for the um, dutch supreme court to ask for an advisory opinion from the european court of human rights um that we're guided it's in, in answering the you know in in, in deciding the case but well, i think one reason why that wasn't done was it would have taken too much time um, the, there was there was no time for the process, and you see other courts also you know, trying to act quickly with urgency. The European Court of Human Rights itself now, as well in the Portuguese children's case, as you may have seen, has also um, prioritized the case. So it is it, it is dealing with it expediently, um, at least in the co in, within the co court's own framework. Mm -hmm. So um, there's some signs to be hopeful. <laughs> That's good. No, they, these do, things do seem like they drag out for quite a bit. So it's good to see that at least there's some, yeah, measures put in place to see and try and address them that they're still relevant. And um, the last question that we going that I'm going to ask is from Eleanor, and she's wondering if there's any advice you could give to someone looking to start a career in environmental and climate law, and if, in your opinion, it can be worth getting experience and working for commercial firms to begin with in order to understand the other side, as it were. So yeah, that's the final yeah. question today. <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. I think it really depends from one person to another. Um, whether I, I, I have seen, I have seen, um, young people doing that and starting to work for, working for commercial firms and then um, trying to use that as a launching pad for a career in environmental law. So there are different benefits and risks to that. Of course, it's, really, it's good to get insight into the other side and uh, as a, theoretically speaking at least, but even in practice, it, it, it can inform your thinking. You only understand if you know your enemy, <laughs> it's easier to beat them but there's some risks one risk is you can get trapped of course um the very practically often um the, the starting salary is going high you get comfortable so i see that happening i've seen it happening to friends even to get they get trapped in corporate law find it hard to get out um that's one thing another thing is that um it may just not suit you it depends on your personality as well so um 
it's of course it's a different kind of environment and some some people just don't thrive in that but probably if, if that if you you'd feel that you, you'd feel that and you can run away <laughs> but um yeah then you want so you, you can try it out and, and see if it suits you but i do not i really wouldn't say that is necessary um you can very well dive straight into what you really believe you want to do if that is actually <laughs> um human rights and climate justice work it's only this is the future um there there's so many opportunities now like now for example compared to 10 years ago it's incredible there's so many jobs advertised. It's it's not it's really um, there's much more money in the space. There there's much more work to do for lawyers and for other graduates. So um, do you really even want to <laughs> go down the commercial um, route before you go straight into the into that field? So. Um, yeah, there are all those jobs I should mention. Also, academia is also interesting. You can um, you can do further studies, especially with PhD, for example, it gives you more time to, um, to to build up your own niche area of expertise. Do what you really what you think is really important, and then at the same time, you can do do you can do many things on the side. So that is also a career path that I would recommend anyone who's interested in this field to explore. Yes, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, thank you for offering your advice and, and to answer any further questions that anyone else might have. Um, it's been really interesting and also it's so exciting to see the developments that are happening with regards to climate justice and law. And yeah, hopefully how in the future maybe this will be a completely, yeah, this will be maybe a new norm and that is developing with regards to um climate justice being effect more effectively addressed in courts and uh, as a way to address these massive, massive challenges that we are facing uh, in, in years to come. So, no, it's really exciting. And it's really exciting to hear about your work and your expertise. So thank you very much. And um, yeah, thank you for everyone who's tuned in this afternoon. Uh, thank you for Amnesty and for Rectors Committee for co-hosting with me long and Heather and um, yeah for all the exciting questions. I hope you enjoyed this episode on the topic of writing climate justice into law. It was a really exciting event and um, I'm very grateful for Margareta for her time in answering um, all the questions and discussing this topic. Um, I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did please make sure to follow Ecoactivist Jenny's um, I hope you will listen to more episodes and um, yeah, take care. I hope you're doing well wherever you are in the world. Love, Leah.